so we'll continue that this morning. Um, last week, our, our senior pastor, Gary Brooks, um, taught from Romans 8 and laid out sort of a broader foundation for us of what it means to live a, the spiritual life in general as a believer and then he transitioned in the second half of his sermon to give us an overview of spiritual uh, gifts specifically. And so this morning, I want to pick up where he left off last week and, and continue through a survey of sorts on spiritual gifts. And so as you can already tell uh, from your bulletins, we are going to be um, going for breadth more so than, than depth this morning. Um, that is partially because there's just a lot, I think, that's important to say about spiritual gifts uh, from Scripture, but um, specifically, it's also largely driven by our text for this morning itself. And so I want to try and ground all 20, 20 of these points, of these misconceptions about spiritual gifts, common misconceptions, in one short passage from Romans chapter 12. And so we better get started. Um, if you would stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's word as you're able, um, we are going to be in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, so let me read it for us. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the view of God's mercies, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of the faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good God and the giver of good gifts. And so, Father, as we uh, submit ourselves now to your word and, and to the study of it, pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our minds and our hearts, just as you illuminated Paul as he was writing it, um, and that uh, you would help us to grow individually, personally, in terms of our own understanding, appreciation, and application of our spiritual gift, as well as collectively as the body. For your glory and our good, in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. You may be seated. Misconception, thank you, misconception number one about spiritual gifts is that they are difficult to define and identify. I think that sometimes we treat uh, spiritual gifts as a sort of vague, esoteric concept that's shrouded in mysticism. It can conjure up images of Professor Trelawney reading our tea leaves or something like that. Uh, but in response, 
in an attempt to demystify spiritual gifts, the church's answer has often been to swing the pendulum the other way and reduce spiritual gifts to a five-minute online quiz. And I think Scripture's view of spiritual gifts is clearly somewhere between the two. Here's how Gary defined spiritual gifts for us biblically last week. He said, The gifts of the Holy Spirit are divine empowerments of God's grace, sovereignly distributed in the lives of his people, for the common good and for the glory of God. That is a great working definition for us. And as for identifying our gifts, I really like how John MacArthur put it in his commentary on Romans. MacArthur says, God does not give his children gifts without letting them know what those gifts are. Therefore, if we are not sure of our gifts from God, it is most likely because we are not close to God. We come to know our gifts more fully as we come to know him more fully. They cannot be recognized except as we use them. When a believer walks in holy obedience to the Lord, filled with the Holy Spirit, and serving God, it will become apparent to him and to others what his gift is and how it blesses the body of Christ. And so our giftedness must not only be discerned in relationship with the Lord, but in relationship with others as well. If you want to know what your spiritual gift is, don't take a self-assessment online. Ask your life group. Misconception number two about spiritual gifts is that they aren't intrinsically connected to core Christian doctrines. I think we sometimes treat spiritual gifts as a sort of separate, secondary addendum to basic Christian doctrine. Most churches' statements of faith don't reference spiritual gifts at all, and yet Notice how Paul connects spiritual gifts here with, with one of the core doctrines of Christianity, our sanctification. Most of our Bibles begin the section of, uh, on spiritual gifts in verse 3, but how does verse 3 itself begin with that small, powerful word, for? For points us back to verses 1 and 2, which is probably the most memorable passage on sanctification in all of Scripture. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not any longer be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds that you may be able to test and approve what is the will of God, his holy, pleasing, and perfect will. That's how I memorized it. That basically sums up the Christian's entire response to the salvation that we have been offered in Christ. We lay down our lives in response to him in return. That is our worship. We submit to the Spirit's leading as he redeems us from our old habits, as he renews and transforms us more into the image of Christ, learning to step, walk in step with the Spirit's leading more and more over time. That is all huge stuff. And that is, that is our entire response post-salvation to Christ. But none of it is even possible without the empowering, the grace gifting of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul's whole discussion of spiritual gifts in verses six, uh, 3 through 8 is going to be inextricably linked with this core doctrine of sanctification in verses 1 and 2. And because of that, misconception number 3, spiritual gifts are of central importance. Misconception number 3 is believing that they aren't. Paul exclaims in verse 1, he says, I appeal to you. The Greek word is parakaleo, I exhort, I urge, I beg, I beseech you, I plead with you, Paul says, you've got to hear me on this point. Why? Because Paul knows all too personally that without the Holy Spirit attempting to achieve sanctification in our own strength can actually lead us to more destruction and harm than good. 
can lead us to do things like murder people in God's name. If you were Paul, or today, since we're more civilized, to murder each other in our words on Facebook. Paul knows that there can be no real unity save for the unity that we have in the Spirit. And Paul understands when he uses this wonderful, beautiful image and metaphor of the body, that a body is always either growing or it's dying. And what is the growth mechanism that God has designed for his body, for the church? It's our spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are are the growth hormones of the body, if you will. Our spiritual gifts are precisely how God has designed us to build one another up in the body of Christ until we all attain to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, Ephesians 4. They are essential. Uh, Misconception number four is that if I'm not musical, I don't have the spiritual gift of worship. Paul mentions worship only once in this passage, and it's not in the context of his list of spiritual gifts in verses 6 through 8. It's right here in verse 1, from the outset, as an overarching label to describe any act whereby we present our bodies sacrificially unto the Lord for his service. And so in other words, by exercising our spiritual gifts, we are worshiping the Lord. Conversely, if we aren't exercising our spiritual gifts that God has given us for the edification of his people and the service of the world, then no matter how much noise we make together on a Sunday morning, we're not actually worshiping, right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of angels but have not love, I am but a noisy gong. And so worship isn't a spiritual gift. Worship is what happens when a Christian puts his or her spiritual gift to work. It's important. Let me say that again. Worship is not a spiritual gift. Worship is what happens when a Christian puts his or her spiritual gift to work. Misconception number five is that spiritual gifts aren't really supernatural. Gary covered this a lot um, last week, but this is really important. If we really believe that the same God who created the universe is also so personal and so loving that he would condescend not only in the person of Jesus to show us how to live and to pay our penalty when we don't, but also in the person of the Holy Spirit as well, to not only model externally and to intercede for us, but to also empower internally and to lead us to to live in our hearts and to call his bodies, uh, our bodies, his temple. How condescending on the part of our God. And that this is supernatural stuff. But the enemy will try and convince you that there's nothing supernatural about you stacking chairs after the church picnic. Brothers and sisters, we know all too personally that there is absolutely nothing natural about selflessly serving one another with cheerfulness, as Paul puts it in verse 8. That that is not coming from me. There's nothing within me that does that selflessly. That must come from him. Without God's supernatural intervention, we have absolutely no shot at ever being unconformed to the patterns of this world, self-centeredness. We have no shot of ever being transformed into new creations in Christ, at ever attaining to the unity of the faith as a church. We're just far too imperfect and broken. That takes supernatural intervention. He must do that. Uh, Misconception number six is that 
God's will is difficult to identify. This is tricky but important. Paul declares, by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. Okay, so Paul elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 2 explains that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So at first glance, Paul says agnosticism, it appears to be our most reasonable uh, conclusion and worldview there is. Paul sympathizes with the agnostics line of thinking in verse 16 in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, for who has understood the mind of the Lord? Who could? Who could understand? The almighty God of the universe? But look at what Paul says next. But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. If that didn't come straight from Scripture, and I just got up here and proclaimed it, we have the mind of Christ, you'd stone me probably for blasphemy. But that is, that is biblical, and it's so key for us to get. Because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, you and I can actually discern spiritually the things of God. And so part of the purpose of prayer then for us must simply be to help us become more aware of and in touch with God's presence and his leading within us. And as we become more aware and we submit more to God's leading, God's will becomes a lot less vague and sort of about reading tea leaves and it becomes a lot more tangible to us. I heard a pastor make this analogy once. He said, if we were out in the woods and I said to you, I need to find the path, you would probably assume, what? That I'm not already on the path, right? That I'm lost somewhere in the woods. And his point was that if we're walking in step with the Spirit, if we're, if we're living in the center of God's will for our lives, then we won't have to spend nearly as much time searching for the path. Stay in prayer. Stay in the Word. You want to know what the will of the Lord is? He wrote it down for you. Read, study, apply, repeat. Right? Stay in the prayer. Stay in the Word. And then determining God's will for us in most of the decisions we face in life, in most areas of, of life, it really isn't that impossible or mystical. Just stay on the path. Misconception number seven is that my spiritual gift just comes naturally to me. Paul reemphasizes this in verses three and six. By the grace given to me, according to the grace given to us, spiritual gifts are graces. They are unearned, freely given gifts from God. They're not, they're not common gift grace, graces given to everyone, like friendship and creation. They're not, they are special grace gifts given only to believers. You may have had certain proficiencies that aided in the exercise of your gift, but the gift itself was supernaturally imparted to you by the Holy Spirit only when you came to Christ in faith. And so last week, Gary mentioned the example of his father who read the Bible cover to cover many times and never saw Jesus. That was me for many years of my life. I had proficiencies. I'm Fairly intelligent, I, I'm highly critical and discerning. I, I pick up on things that others often miss. You can ask my wife if that's a gift or not. I articulate my thoughts pretty clearly in communication. These are all natural predispositions that God created with me with that would one day aid in the exercise of my gift of teaching. But for years, I actually taught and I led youth groups without a regenerated heart. 
without the empowering gifting of the Holy Spirit. And the best teacher in the world, devoid of the Holy Spirit, will lead others astray. And so stacking chairs with joy, seeing Christ in the book of Leviticus, these are not things that come naturally to you and I. They must be given to us by God. Misconception number eight is that maybe I don't have a spiritual gift. We dealt with this last week too. Paul addresses his words to everyone among you, verse three. Peter says, just as each has received a gift, Jesus said, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? If you belong to God, he has gifted you. It's that simple. But misconception number nine is, well, then my spiritual gift makes me awesome. You know how Pastor Gary likes the word awesome. Paul advises us in verse three, not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but to think with sober judgment. Friends, you and I should only be able to get so prideful when we remember that this passage was written by a guy who is the reason that Christianity is the largest religion on earth today instead of a small subsect of Judaism, right? By show of hands, how many of you are not Jewish in this room? All right. The Apostle Paul is the reason you and I can be included in this thing, right? He was the original missionary to the Gentiles, and yet Paul himself says, don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought. Paul himself says, what is Paul? I'm nothing. I'm a servant. Christ is all in all. So, Remember, this is the guy who brought a guy back from the dead. Acts chapter 20, Eutychus falls out the window. Paul brings him back back from the dead. That same Paul says, be humble. You are not awesome. God is awesome. So give all praise, redirect all praise and thanksgiving back to him. He gave you the gift in the first place. Misconception number 10 is that spiritual gifts are different but equal. I think this is one of the more believable um, misconceptions because at some point you have probably been taught or, or thought that although they're different, all of the spiritual gifts are equally important. The problem is that Scripture clearly controverts that. So verse three, Paul says, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In other words, God has assigned us each not only different gifts, but different capacities for using those gifts. What does that mean? I think that means two things. First of all, not all Christians with the same gift are graced with equal degrees of giftedness. Tim Keller and I may both have the gift of teaching. There's a reason that he, pa- he preaches to packed out crowds at sold out conferences and stadiums, and I don't, right? Because we have different degrees of giftedness. Chapter, uh, and, but secondly, the second thing that this means is that when we compare different gifts to one another, Scripture describes some gifts as being greater than others. So we've got 1 Corinthians 12. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing. He goes on, are all apostles, prophets, teachers, but earnestly desire, what? The higher gifts. Chapter 14 Paul says, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophecy. And then he goes on to compare, contrast, 
speaking in tongues with prophecy. And he says, I desire that all of you speak in tongues, but even more to prophecy. The one who prophecies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. We might like to believe that stacking chairs in the church is just as important as preaching the word. That's just not biblically true. Read Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now, here's what's important to, to say about that. The stacker of the chairs is equally important as the preacher of the word. Right? We have to discern and distinguish between the role that is being played and the person. Right? We all have inherent equal value and worth, not by virtue of what we do, but by virtue of whose we are. That's important to affirm. But the role that we play, Pastor Gary is no more important than you or I as a person. The role that he plays at this church is, is more crucial. But the counterbalance to that is point number 11. The misconception would be, well, that that means that my spiritual gift is just insignificant, that I'm insignificant. The role I play here is insignificant. Paul says, absolutely not. And so he he takes us immediately in verses 4 and 5 to this truth. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And he says it even more explicitly in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. So, while our roles don't have identical value, they are still both indispensable. The analogy I thought of was, if I asked you, what's more important to you, oxygen, water, or food? You take the oxygen... And you'd live another three or four days, right? And by that point, the water would be just as important to you if you're going to keep surviving. And then a month later, you'd need the food just as much, right? They are all indispensable. Some are more indispensable than others. And yet, there's another tension here that we've got to throw into the mix as well. While the role that you play in the church is indispensable, you are not. We've all got to be able to admit this humbly for ourselves, that I actually am not personally indispensable to the body. No one sitting in this room this morning is the heart or the brain of West Hills. That role is reserved for Jesus. If I die tomorrow, if Pastor Gary died tomorrow, if you left the church tomorrow, we'd miss you, but we would survive. The role you play here, if you are truly a player, if you're truly exercising your spiritual giftedness as God has called you to, that role is indispensable collectively to us because it's necessary for the proper functioning of the body. And again, you have personal infinite worth solely by virtue of belonging to Christ. That's where your worth comes from. Even if you're the gallbladder, Technically, you can live without a gallbladder, right? But just ask Pastor Gary about the pain and the side effects associated with not having a proper functioning gallbladder. So even if you're the gallbladder, we have a place for you here at West Hills. We want you to know that. (laughs) Misconception number 12 is that I can use my spiritual gifts outside of the body, outside of community. Now, this is a misconception that would have been totally unthinkable to the Apostle Paul. Only in our 21st century, fragmented, 
individualized, suburbanized, increasingly uh, compartmentalized, disconnected world, would we even consider the possibility that one might be able to exercise her spiritual giftedness divorced from the body? There is a reason that the New Testament's driving metaphor for spiritual giftedness and for the church is the body. Does my hand do my body any good if I chop it off? And yet, how many Christians today treat active involvement in the life of the local church as optional? Listen, this is not the Adams family, right? Where that creepy, severed hand crawls around on its own thing, right? This is not the Adams family. We live in the real world where a severed hand shrivels up and dies. So, if you're here with us back in January, when we started this new year, Gary led us through a mini-series on why you need to be with the church every week. And he challenged us with 15 reasons that we need each other as a church. And in response, we all wrote down a number. We said, I will commit to being with the church blank Sundays out of 52. I should have given out and a sort of a, a, a separate thing that said, I'll commit to being with my life group, blank Wednesdays of 52. Equally important. We're not secretly tracking you. That, that is between you and God. But with 11 Sundays left in 2018, how are you doing on that? We can check in this morning. How's your attendance? And, and more importantly for this morning's discussion, how active is your participation What role do you play on our team here? Are you a consumer or a contributor? And how does God want to use you specifically and personally to bless others here at West Hills? I'm so honored to be at a church where we really do have such active engagement and participation. I tell people, visitors, when they come, we got a lot of visitors this morning, if you really are just kind of looking for a church where you can consume this is probably not the place for you because our people love to serve each other. I'm so thankful for that. Misconception number 13 is that uh, now we're getting into the spiritual gifts that are listed by name in, in Romans 12 in this passage. We start with the gift of prophecy. So misconception 13 is that prophecy is all about future telling. That was a a, a component of the Old Testament role of prophet, but that was never his primary function. Primarily, a prophet is God's public spokesman to instruct, admonish, warn, rebuke, correct, challenge, comfort, and encourage. That's what a prophet most fundamentally is, is the mouthpiece of God. And so there are some, like MacArthur, from whom I I stole the definition that um, I just had up there, Greg. Um, Some, like MacArthur, will restrict God's prophetic revelation today to Scripture alone. And so MacArthur believes that all spontaneous, personal, supernatural revelation of God ceased with the end of the apostolic age, that God speaks to us today exclusively through his word. Other believers, especially of the charismatic variety, might politely ask MacArthur, who are you to restrict God's ability and his desire to continue to speak to his people in any way that he so chooses? And I know for a fact that we have both of those types of believers here. Both point to scripture in support of their points. We have both that worship with us here. And so the only stance I'm gonna take very politically this morning on the issue 
publicly at least, I'm always up for a good, lively, private theological debate, but publicly I would just say that I think that this is, that, that the very fact that we have cessationists and charismatics worshiping side by side here at West Hills is a testament to the unity of the spirit and the body that Paul is most concerned with in the first place. That's what the passage is all about. And the most important thing for us is that we all agree that God still uses people as his mouthpiece. As of Whether you think that's the, the preacher and just through the word or whether you think that there's really still a role for prophecy. That is huge. That is what a humbling and yet exalting uh, truth that we believe, that, that our God would use broken vessels like us as his, as his mouthpiece. But Paul puts three boundaries on prophecy for us. The first is that prophecy must be in proportion to our faith. The word for proportion there is better translated as standard or rule. So Paul is really saying that any prophetic word must be in accordance with the rule of faith that is laid out in Scripture. So if a prophet comes to you saying, I have a word from the Lord, and it contradicts Scripture, then don't listen. Number two, Prophecy must be tested for that reason because it's imperfect. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. 1 Corinthians 13, as for prophecies, they'll pass away for we know in part and we prophesy in part. And then lastly, prophecy must always be for the edification of the body. That is why we strive for it selflessly, not for our own recognition, but for the building up of the saints. That's prophecy. Misconception number 14 now we get to service. Is I must not have the gift of serving because I don't enjoy stacking chairs. I think we need to be really slow to rule out God's gifting in a particular area just because it doesn't come naturally to us or just because, especially if your reasoning is that you don't enjoy it. I, I don't find any passage of Scripture where God says the confirmation of your spiritual giftedness will be your own personal gratification. Rather, it's always about our collective edification. Not personal gratification, collective edification. And I might just also add here that just because it's not your spiritual gift, that doesn't mean that you are not called to do it. If I just love the weeks that I get to spend a ton of time immersed in God's word, studying and preparing a sermon, and then sharing with God's word uh, from you, if, if, that's, if that fires me up, but then hypothetically, I dread our next church-wide huge event because I know all the grunt work that goes into that, and that is just not my jam, right? If, if that's who I am, then yes, there is something to be said for identifying those in the church who do love that and empowering them to play their part, but that may also be cause for me to check my heart and to check my own motivations, and, and to earnestly pray for a heart like Christ who came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be servant of all. Without any reference to spiritual gifts, Jesus didn't say if you enjoy it. He didn't say if you feel like it's your gift. Jesus said, serve one another. We are called to it. And I want to tell you this morning how inspiring it is to me, and I hope it is for you too, that you recognize to serve alongside elders at this church who embody Jesus' ideal of servant leadership. We have men at this church, seven men that lead this church, 
who could very easily say, we're busy shepherding, uh, we'll leave the stacking of the chairs to other people. But I guarantee you, look around, now they have to because I'm saying it out loud, but look around at the next church picnic, look, in, look around at the business meeting, look around at the night of thanks, and notice who's serving. We have elders here who lead this church who do not lead like Gentiles, lording it over us. Our elders follow in the footsteps of their Lord who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and washed his disciples' feet. And we should appreciate that and recognize that. Praise God for their example of selfless leadership. Misconception number 15 is that I must not have the gift of teaching because I'm not up there talking right now, Pastor Will is. Pastor Gary is. Those gifts must be reserved for pastors. I hope that you don't buy into this misconception. For one thing, we have tons of different roles and outlets for you to teach here, if this is your gift. From working with the kids and the youth group up to teaching adult Sunday school classes and life groups. But I would also just say, what about preaching? I, mean, I, 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 will, I'm gonna, I warned him I was going to do this. I'm going to pick on Eli Sandhouse for a minute because Eli was expressing to me the other day um, that he feels called to lead and to be an elder here someday. I think that's why he's growing his beard out, <laughs> to look the part. Got to start dying at gray. But, but Eli told me, you know, I just really feel called to help lead the church one day. And then he kind of paused and he said, you know, not lead, lead like you and Gary. I mean, not like preach. And I interrupted and I was like, why not? Why not? What if God desires to use you to preach? I mean, I, I see that giftedness in him. You know, I see that potential that God might be nurturing that in him. I want to call that out in him. And I could probably say the same of many of you who may very well have that gift also. And whether you do or not, that same principle with serving is true here too. Whether you feel called to teach, whether you feel like it's your gift or not, you have been called to teach. Deuteronomy 6 says, These words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. Teach all the time. Starts in the home with your family. Don't let it stop there. When you walk in the way, when you're outside the, the doors of your house, teach all the time. Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We're called to teach. And as a quick side note, preaching is not the highest gift. According to Scripture, that was a combination of number two, prophecy, and number three, teaching in Paul's list there in 1 Corinthians uh, uh, 12. But, but do you remember what the number one, the highest gift that Paul lists? First, he says, first, the apostles. Apostles are greatest, not teaching within the church, but those who are sent out to be a witness to the nations, missionaries. It's just food for thought for you this morning. Misconception number 16 is that exhortation is all about admonishing. So the Greek word here, paraklesis, is really more about caregiving than anything else. It's not just exhortation. So paraklesis is associated with the Greco-Roman tradition of the care of souls. 
while a distinction was sometimes made between consolation and admonition, the two aspects of parakaleo tended to blend together. So it's related etymologically, actually, to the word that Jesus uses for himself, and then especially uses uh, the paraclete for the Holy Spirit in, in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, when Jesus says, though I'm about to leave you, don't worry, I'm going to send you another helper or advocate or comforter, depending on your translation. So when we think about the spiritual gift of exhortation today, I think especially of one with the gift of counseling, of comforting. A good counselor will exhort you. She'll give you a kick in the pants when you need it to straighten you out, but she'll also give you comfort and consolation when you need that. And many, many of you here at West Hills I know have this gift. We're so thankful for that. We should all strive for it. We should nurture it, pray for it, develop it within our hearts. Misconception number 17 is that I must not have the gift of contributing because I'm not rich. There's nothing about the word metadidus that Paul uses here in this verse that connotes wealth. He simply says, if you contribute financially to the church, do it generously. We remember the story of Jesus commending the widow who put one mite into the offering plate and saying she gave more than the, the, the Pharisees that make a big show of giving their, their 10%. They're hefty you know, tithes, but they do it out of obligation. Regardless of your financial status, Paul here simply tells us to contribute generously to the material financial needs of others. And in my experience personally, sometimes uh, the church's biggest financial contributors do actually need an extra kick in the pants. And, and sometimes we as leaders in the church fail to give them that when they need it out of concern for the budget. And so I think we just have to repent of that as leaders of the church. I mentioned in a pre previous sermon from personal experience, a wealthy physician in my former church who bristled at the idea of volunteering with the rest of us at the soup kitchen on Saturday morning. He said, that's why I cut checks bigger than everyone else, so I don't have to serve at the soup kitchen. Friends, Jesus could have said, I gave them the gift of life. I shouldn't have to die on the cross to give them new life. But praise God, he didn't. Misconception number 18, speaking of Jesus, is that Jesus is the only leader we'll ever need in the church. He's the only leader we need. Scripture is really clear about this one, the importance of solid leadership within the church. I love what John MacArthur says on this point. He says, it is significant that Paul makes no mention of leaders in his first letter to the church of Corinth. Not only in his passage about spiritual gifts, but anywhere in the, in the first letter to the church of Corinth. Lack of a functioning leadership would help explain its serious moral and spiritual problems. Anyone read the letter of 1 Corinthians lately? We're working through it as a life group right now. They were just all kinds of jacked up. Right? People sleeping with their moms and just weird stuff. Awful. But as a fellow leader in the church, it is reassuring to know that even the Apostle Paul made some mistakes. I mean, some pretty big mistakes. Failing to appoint leaders in a church is a pretty big oversight. 
And yet, who among us is going to argue with the Lord's blessing over the ministry and leadership of the Apostle Paul? What an encouragement that should be to those of us perfectionists in leadership positions that you will make mistakes, but God will work through you nevertheless. That's an encouragement. At the same time, we should also look to Paul's example of learning from his mistakes. In in his later letters that Paul writes, he has clearly recognized and repented of and corrected his oversights because the most important passages we have on leadership in the church all come from the Apostle Paul. So you've got Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 5, 2 Timothy 2. I won't read all those, but I mean, the passages we go to for what it looks like to lead are from the Apostle Paul. Orderly, faithful, competent servant leadership that is able to reproduce itself into the next generation of leaders as well. That is essential to the longevity and the proper functioning of the body of Christ. Our last gift is mercy. Misconception number 19 is that it can be difficult to be a caregiver to others, so I must not have the gift of mercy. And I'm glad that Paul ends with the gift of mercy because it means that I'm out of time and I don't uh, have to exposit this one as much uh, because this is my weakest gift, personally. I'll just admit that, confess that, humility this morning. I'm embarrassed to admit that as a pastor. I feel like I should have the gift of mercy in spades. Um, But I think that perhaps that's actually a really good place for us to end up. Because as much as we should all strive for all the gifts, especially the greater gifts, there's also a place that God calls us to, in humility to recognize that we cannot do it all ourselves, that we need each other. And so Pastor Gary has the gift of mercy. No question about it. I have other gifts that he doesn't have as much. We complement one another well. Praise God, for the sake of West Hills, I'm not the only pastor on staff. Praise God, hopefully, that I am on staff and he's not the only, right? We complement one another and we should all, as a church, as a body, we strive to complement one another's giftedness. All of us, right? Every part of the body is indispensable. So our final misconception, number 20, is that surely... 20 points later, this must be all of the spiritual gifts and everything there is to say about spiritual gifts. We will hear about an additional 10 gifts that we didn't even touch in 1 Corinthians 12 in the next two weeks alone, and that doesn't even include Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4. So I don't know whether Gary's planning to get into that, those two whole lists or not, but here's the complete list from the New Testament if you want to see them all there together. And there's obviously overlaps. Paul and Peter, they, they, they uh, duplicate in some of those lists. But I think the point with that is that, again, as, as John Piper reminded us in the quote that Gary shared with you last week, we must not get hung up on naming our gifts. The thing is, is not that. The thing to get hung up on is, are we doing what we can do to strengthen the faith of those around us? And so, Brothers and sisters, I encourage you this morning not to get hung up on naming your gift and what it's called and not to limit yourself to the list you find there. 
The question to ask is, is there an opportunity here to edify the body, to build up another believer? And if the answer is yes, then whatever you call it, whatever you label it, go for it, do it. And as Piper said, if you find that actually you're pretty good at it and God blesses it, maybe that's a spiritual gift. So friends, praise God for the gift of one another, for the gift of community, the body of Christ, and for the gifts that he so generously gives us so that we really can be a blessing and a gift and an encouragement to one another. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you're so good. And your gifts are so good. God, as we're reminded this morning, we don't deserve the gift of life. No one here gave themselves that gift. We certainly don't deserve the gift of new life, of a second chance, of forgiveness of salvation. Jesus, you could have said, I've gifted them enough already. They had their chance, but you didn't. And we praise you this morning for the gift of salvation, first and foremost. And Father, if there's anyone here who has not personally experienced that gift, Pray that even through the focus on spiritual gifts this morning, somehow you would have touched their heart, caused them to, to question in a new way. Even if it is wondering, have I been given a spiritual gift? Could I have a spiritual gift if I haven't actually surrendered my heart, my life to you in faith yet? If I don't actually have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in my life, Father, if there's anyone here this morning, that, that that's them, that's where they are, I pray that you would give them spiritual eyes to see themselves and to see you for who they are and who you are this morning. Father, for the rest of us, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that you could have been content to let Jesus die on the cross, pay for the penalty, the punishment of our sins, and for that to be enough and to allow us to stumble around in the darkness, trying our best to follow you without the real power or guidance to do it, but you didn't do that. You gave us your Holy Spirit to lead us, to empower us comfort us, help us. God, we thank you for the Holy Spirit. And we thank you for the gifts that he bestows on each of us individually and collectively as a body.
just bless us with an embarrassment of riches. Not just salvation, not just Christ, not just the Holy Spirit, but gifts personally for our good and for the edification of the body and for your glory. So, Father, I pray that we, too, this morning would be convicted, challenged, encouraged, that we would feel equipped and empowered and and, and thanked and appreciated by this body at West Hills for the role that we play. And I thank you that this is a church that loves you passionately and that serves you and one another faithfully. Help us to do that more this morning and in the weeks and months and years to come. We will give you the glory, the honor, and the praise because you deserve it, because you are the giver of the gift. Pray all this in the name of Jesus.